0: P.F.K. in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, what is to be done about the Omicron variant of COVID-19? Greg Gonsalves argues that it serves as a reminder of how little we're doing on pandemic prevention. Greg teaches at the Yale School of Public Health. He's been an AIDS activist for 30 years. Also later in the hour, the greatest Beatles event of the decade, of many decades, is the eight-hour documentary called The Beatles Get Back. It's been streaming this past week on Disney+. Plus. LA Times columnist Gustavo Ariano will comment, turns out he's a big-time Beatles fan. But first, today's politics update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Well, the prospect has posted a new piece arguing that quote to be an effective liberal today, you need to be a socialist." close quote Why is this piece important? Well, that's the kind
1: of thing that would always be part of a Michael Harrington speech, Michael being the founder of dSA uh, sort of the preeminent socialist of the seventies uh, and eighties in particular uh, and to certain degree, the 60s. This comes, though, uh, obviously not from Michael, who has not been with us for three decades, uh, but from maybe the most cogent, intellectual, liberal, New Deal liberal, quasi-social Democrat, who's always resisted the socialist label until now, that being my partner in crime at The Prospect, the Prospect founder, Bob Kuttner, who is in many ways still the guiding spirit of the American prospect. And uh, in a piece that Bob wrote, and I edited, though there really wasn't much to edit, um, uh, Bob argues that he has come to the conclusion that capitalism itself undermines uh, social democratic reforms, liberal reforms, and that simply to preserve those, we really need democratic socialism, which Bob basically defines as not simply social democracy, but a whole lot of public enterprise, uh, either supplanting or supplementing uh, the kind of
0: capitalist institutions which increasingly dominate our world. Robert Kuttner at prospect.org. Well, now let's talk about Washington politics. Many times you have talked about how the individual parts of the Build Back Better bill are immensely popular popular even with Republicans, yet Joe Biden is not popular with a majority of Americans. What's gone wrong here?
1: Well, a lot of things have gone wrong here. Um, You know, uh, to a certain degree, the the definition of liberals and Democrats uh, often is defined in terms of less popular social uh, rights issues and such. but Biden has actually really kind of revived a sort of New Deal strain of, uh, of, of democratic identity in the form of the infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better bill. However, 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 that message hasn't gotten through. Um, in fact, if you're looking for who has dominated the most news cycles in talking about the Build Back Better bill, you will find that it is not the president of the United States. It's a senator from West Virginia. And the senator from West Virginia, Joe Manchin, basically deals with the cost of the bill and never gets into the particulars. And it's the particulars which the public broadly supports. So uh, we have a paradox here in which uh, uh, the, 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 the president's use of the bully pulpit has been deficient. Uh, and that's been a real problem for the president and for the Democratic Party as a whole.
0: And why do you think Joe Biden or his people in the White House have not put him in front more talking about these extremely popular measures?
1: Well, that's a, that's a very good question. He does talk about them. He goes out and he highlights a particular thing uh, in, in Baltimore and one particular element in Detroit. Uh, These are mainly daytime events uh, and they're not really the way a uh, president can maximize his message and his public, which is to say a primetime address from the Oval Office, which Joe Biden has not done. Uh, And, you know, it's a little mysterious why. I mean, there's talk around this town, this town being where I live and work, Washington, D.C., that some of his aides are a little concerned that uh, it's too high a risk, that he may flub his lines. Uh, You know, it may be a risk, but there's also a significant reward in the president using the biggest megaphone that he has. I mean, we know early next year he is going to give a State of the Union address, and that will be one way he can do that. But one Talk per year uh, ain't gonna do it. As presidents, at least going back as far as Franklin Roosevelt, who used the fireside chat several times each year with great effect, uh, presidents since Franklin Roosevelt have known. Um, and uh, maybe there's a risk to Joe Biden doing it, but they're, they're in foregoing the risk, they are forfeiting a, a major reward that they really
0: need. Next, I want to talk about gerrymandering. We're seeing the maps are coming in now. The Republicans need what, 4 or 5 house more house seats in the present lineup of the parties in order to take control of the House, and apparently their gerrymandering of the states they control has already created 4 or 5 more uh, Republican districts, so even if they get nowhere if they if they make no progress in winning new people they're still going to control the House when Congress reconvenes in january twenty twenty three The even more ominous news was the New York Times report last week that the Republican maps for the state legislatures in four battleground states uh, will create basically insurmountable Republican control of state government in Texas, North Carolina, Ohio, and Georgia, where the maps have either created super majorities in their state legislatures capable of overriding a governor's veto. So even if we manage to get Beto elected governor of Texas, It looks like the Texas legislature will be gerrymandered enough to be able to override that veto, or they've whittled down the competitive districts so significantly that Republicans' advantage is virtually, I'm quoting the New York Times here, virtually impenetrable, leaving voters in narrowly divided states powerless to change the leadership of their legislatures. And this is not just for next year, this is for the next 10 years. Looks bad. Yeah.
1: And it, 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 if they get a supermajority that can override a gubernatorial veto, as you noted, um, you could have the paradox of Democrats winning the statewide offices, governor, attorney general, whatever's on the ballot, and really having very limited power over w- what uh, the state policy is. Uh, North Carolina already has a Democratic governor. Uh, and uh You know, if Wisconsin and Pennsylvania go this route, states that have Democratic governors and Democrats elected to the statewide offices, they will be relatively powerless. Now, I should say that there is a wild card in the deck for 2022, and the Supreme Court held a hearing on that wild card uh, on the day we're talking, which is Wednesday afternoon. If the court repeals Roe, if it overturns Roe v. Wade, there are a lot of swing women voters in the suburbs, Republican women voters in the suburbs, who may go against Republicans in districts that are now counted as, and you know, some of these gerrymandered districts that are counted as safely Republican. Also, if I were a Republican who likes to waffle on this issue and just about to take office as governor, like Glenn Youngkin in Virginia, actually the last thing I would want would be, and Virginia has no laws on this, uh, would be for uh, the court to revoke Roe. Then all the Republican base would say, we've got to pass an uh, anti-abortion law. Then all of the suburbs, which began to tilt back towards Republicans, like in Loudoun County, In November's election, you suddenly would see flight to the Democrats. So, yes, structurally, the Republicans are doing everything they can to lock in majorities. But there are a couple of wild cards in
0: the deck. Now it's time for news about class struggle. Remember how Amazon has no unionized warehouses anywhere in the United States? Remember that unionization drive at that Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama last March? It was the most serious challenge ever from a union at an Amazon warehouse in the United States. And remember how the union lost big? The workers voted two to one against having a union. This was the retail, wholesale and department store union. Well, it turns out it's not over yet. A regional office of the National Labor Relations Board on Monday ordered a new election. They agreed with a union complaint uh, that Amazon had undermined the conditions for a fair election, which is not that surprising. Uh, do you want to fill us in on the story from here?
1: Yeah, well, uh, the, uh, the, the this is a ruling by the regional National Labor Relations Board. Amazon can appeal it to the National uh, labor National Labor Relations Board, National National Labor <laughs> Relations Board. But that now has a Democratic majority, which is certain, really, virtually, to uh, uphold uh, the regional NLRB's ruling. So an election will be held, possibly within several months. Now, that said, I would not bet the mortgage on the union winning this time. Uh, you know, there, there are all kinds of reasons why uh, Amazon won, uh, uh, you know, being, using unfair labor practices, which, frankly, most employers do, uh, when confronted in this country of in the last four or five decades with a union drive. Uh, it was part of it. Uh, but also, you know, in Alabama, uh, Amazon can afford to pay better than a lot of the other jobs around, which is why a uh, you know, a campaign, Uh, in in a more high-wage state, uh, like New York or California or your home state of Minnesota, uh, might be more propitious for for a union. Uh, That said,
0: yeah. uh, I I just want to review what were the grounds on which the NLRB regional board overturned the elections. Kind of an interesting story. Um, Sure. Amazon, this was like the union complained that Amazon pressed the Postal Service to install a mailbox at the warehouse where the vote was going to take place. The union said uh, the mailbox uh, appeared to be under uh, company surveillance cameras and created the impression that Amazon was monitoring which workers voted. Amazon's defense was that they brought in the mailbox to, quote, make voting easier. And the NLRB said it's not the employer's job to run elections and to absolutely. make
1: absolutely that was that was one that was the main reason. There was also that Amazon uh, really uh, went after workers who wore pro-union buttons on the job, which was a sign that you know if you were demonstrably for the union, you might be in trouble and lose your job. And so yeah, my my favorite part
0: was- on that score was Amazon had these mandatory meetings where they pitched. A vote no, and then they had vote no pins, uh, which they distributed in full view of the management HR staff so they could see who was going to take a vote no pin and who refused a vote no pin. That also seems like an unfair labor practice,
1: yeah. And these kinds of meetings are completely standard operating practice, uh, for employers. And you know, we it, it, it's interesting as we see with the Uh, Starbucks attempt, uh, the the workers to unionize in Buffalo, uh, New York, which brought out Starbucks founder Howard Howard Schultz uh, to uh, uh, lecture them on why they shouldn't go union. You know, you have this pathological uh, uh, union phobia and hatred uh, among most every American employer, notwithstanding the fact that uh, if you look at the polling, uh, unions are more popular than they've been in fifty years. Uh, two thirds of the electorate, two thirds of the public, uh, you know, have a favorable opinion of unions. Seventy-seven uh, percent of millennials have a favorable opinion of unions. So um, you know, th- th- this really is a class struggle uh, in which uh, you know employers are badly outnumbered, but still, given the deficiencies uh in labor law still can get away with thwarting uh, majority opinion of, of among their workers
0: well after that bessemer vote we had a lot of criticisms of the specific union and its tactics the retail wholesale and department store union there's a big news in the last few weeks that the teamsters union has has new leadership had an election and they said they're going to go after Amazon. Certainly the Teamsters are a much more capable union than the retail, wholesale, and department store union.
1: You know, the Teamsters had this weird rule that basically it took a two-thirds vote to uh, rat, uh if you wanted to, turn down what the union had agreed to in a
0: contract. This turned out to be a crucial thing in a vote on a new contract at UPS, where a majority of the Teamsters voted to reject this contract. Explain
1: about that. Well, that was three years ago, actually. Uh, And uh, a majority of Teamsters did vote to reject the contract. But since it wasn't two thirds of the Teamsters at UPS, management, which had negotiated, said, that's tough. This is the contract. And the contract, like many of the contracts that are leading to the strikes right now, uh, set up a two-tier structure so that if you were a newbie hired by UPS, you would have lower uh, benefits in pay, uh, even as you've got more seniority than those hired before the contract went into effect. And that kind of two-tier contract has been behind uh, a lot of the strikes we've seen recently at John Deere from the UAW, At Nabisco and Frito Lay and Kellogg, from the Baker's Union, Um, you know uh, these guys want to get rid of two-tier contracts, uh, partly because they care for you know the newbies and successors among them, and they understand that if this stuff uh, continues, uh, everyone will be on the lower tier, and there's really not much of a reason to have a union at all. Um, So this was this was an issue at UPS, uh, and this is one you can be darn sure that O'Brien and the new gang will address when this contract comes
0: up in 2023. And so, the Teamsters are now saying Amazon will be their next target, but they have a very interesting strategy here. Unlike the union that st- that went right into the Bessemer warehouse and started organizing, they're going to do this in stages. First of all, they say, in order to prove what they can do for Amazon workers, they need a better contract at UPS. So. The first target is UPS in 2023. Then their strategy versus uh, against Amazon is pretty interesting. They're starting by ratcheting, ratcheting up pressure on Amazon in, in localities, having community demonstrations, going to city council meetings, organizing boycotts. Southern California, which is an Amazon logistics hub, as we have often noted here, And a place where unions are pretty strong has emerged as a key battleground in what's going to be the teamsters versus amazon uh, war let's call it the teamsters have already campaigned locally in the san diego suburb of el cajon against a proposed amazon facility they say they knocked on the doors of uh, 700 uh, homes and turned out people for county uh, board meetings and in oceanside Uh, They also uh, organized community opposition to uh, Amazon uh, building there. They organized community members to sign commitment cards to stay engaged about Amazon development. And they persuaded the city council to reject the Amazon project. This seems like a much better way It's a long-term strategy rather than what the, what were they called? The retail, wholesale, and department store union tribe.
1: They're they're still called that, yes. But the, (laughs) uh, uh, yeah, well, you know, and this isn't peculiar to the O'Brien slate. I mean, the Ancien regime got this going under pressure from the O'Brien people. uh, And uh, the national strategy has been run by a Southern California-based teamster named Randy Corgan, uh, who is behind those campaigns that you just uh, uh, cited in uh, Oceanside and El Cajon. Uh, so, I mean, all of that is great. The Teamsters honestly do not have a great tradition of mobilizing rank and file as much as say, you, you know, Unite Here, the hotel workers, or uh, some of SEIU. but they better get it because they're gonna need it. Uh, they're, they're gonna need a lot of their members uh, you know, uh, knocking on doors like that. And also doing things, the union doing things like, you know, supporting Elizabeth Warren when she uh, uh, is is looking, demanding a breakup of Amazon uh, for an anti- on antitrust grounds. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot they have to do. And, you know, I mean, in a sense, the Teamsters first grew under old man Jimmy Hoffa because he had a strategy of mobilizing entire cities. Uh, and in a sense they're getting back to that. That was a good side of Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, and, and it accomplished a lot. And, you know, they, they've got to recapture that spirit.
0: On another front of the class struggle, our friends at LANE, the Los Angeles Alliance for a New Economy, are partnering with the SEIU here in Los Angeles on a new campaign to push for better conditions for long-term care workers, they say it's time for $20 an hour and a union for long-term caregivers. That's big. It's big. And, you know,
1: this kind of follows uh, the, the pattern that SCIU and AFSCME have established uh, for uh, uh, child care workers, uh, getting them, uh, when they get public support, uh, uh, getting, getting them a union. Uh, and so it, it only makes sense to do this at this end of the age spectrum, As well, and of course, the Build Back Better bill actually, you know, throws if it passes in current form, uh, provides, uh, again, federal funding um, for, uh, you know, care for both elders and uh, and little kids, um, which 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 means the the prospects of either forming or enlarging unions representing those workers become a lot more uh, a lot more possible.
0: Last but not least, it's time for your Minnesota Moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Last week, a video surfaced in which Lauren Boebert, the far-right Republican from Colorado, suggested that Ilhan Omar, a Muslim from Minneapolis and who wears a hijab, could be a suicide bomber, called her a member of the, quote, jihad squad. Lauren Boebert then Called Ilhan Omar ostensibly to apologize, but instead told her that she, Omar, should, quote, make a public apology to the American people for her anti American, anti Semitic, anti police rhetoric, close quote. Well, after this, the entire House Democratic leadership released a joint statement calling out Lauren Boebert's racism and the failure of the Republican House leadership to, quote, condemn inflammatory and bigoted rhetoric. then one House Republican did criticize Bobert. a person I didn't know, Nancy Mace, a freshman Republican from South Carolina, said Bobert's remarks about Ilhan Omar uh, uh, be, being a suicide bomber were, quote, disgusting. Then Marjorie Taylor Greene called Nancy Mace, quote, trash for condemning Bobert's remarks, and Nancy Mace replied with a series of emojis to describe Marjorie Taylor Greene, a bat, a pile of excrement, and a crazy clown. Adam Kinzinger, Republican of Illinois, then came to Nancy Meza's defense, calling Marjorie Taylor Greene, quote, an unserious cir- circus barker and space laser. This was a reference to a social media post we actually commented on here of uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene suggesting that the wildfires in the West had been started by lasers owned by the Rothschilds, a Jewish banking family. The New York Times reporting on this, uh, this dispute uh, described it as, quote, a remar- remarkably bitter and an indication of a brewing power struggle between an ascendant faction that styles itself after Trump and a quieter one that is pushing back. Personally, I liked about a pile of extra men and a crazy clown uh, images of Marjorie Taylor Greene. I wonder what you think.
1: Uh, I like it, too. And I can only imagine, uh, you know, the Republican leadership as usual now that it's got Republican versus Republican being uh, flummoxed and not willing to say anything. And since you introduced under the heading of a Minnesota moment, I do want to point out that the place where the Teamsters first took, organize a whole city, was Minneapolis in 1934 with a general strike organized by Trotskyists, the only time Trotskyists ever impacted the real world in the United States, and uh, where Jimmy Hoffa actually uh, went to school and learned how to do this. So that's my Minnesota moment.
0: History from Minnesota. Harold Meyerson, read prospect.org thank you harold great to have you on the show
1: great to be here john
0: it's the same old story this is living in the usa and i'm john wiener talking about politics Thinking about the left. What is to be done about the new Omicron variant of the COVID virus? For comment, we turn to Greg Gonsalves. He works at the Yale School of Public Health on Epidemiology for Infectious Disease, and he's been an AIDS activist for 30 years. He writes regularly for The Nation about the pandemic. He's also a 2018 MacArthur Fellow. Greg Gonsalves, welcome back. Thanks, Ken. Well, we're being told if you haven't been vaccinated, get vaccinated. If it's five or six months since your second shot, get the booster and last but not least, be sure to wear a good mask in public places. But you say we need more than just personal advice for the well-protected. What else do we need?
2: Well, look, we've gotten a false sense of um, complacency starting in January 2021, thinking that vaccines were going to be the answer to our problems. And yes, indeed. I'm happy you're vaccinated and I'm vaccinated, that if we're not boosted, we'll be boosted soon, which provides a great deal of protection from SARS-CoV-2 and and severe disease with COVID-19, but most of the world is not vaccinated particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, there's very, very few people vaccinated compared to most other places in the world, including uh, Europe and North America. And this is exactly where places like new variants will arise, where there's uncontrolled viral replication. But here at home, you know, I don't know where you are, but where I am, people are maybe wearing masks, depending on which town you're in, uh, what kind of setting you're in people are no longer taking the, the sort of precautions we took last winter, although we've seen cases started to tick up all across the country with deaths, mostly in the places where people are unvaccinated.
0: Biden said on Monday that the United States has distributed more free vaccine to poor countries than all the other wealthy nations combined. Is that right?
2: Promises, promises, right? Promises have been made. What shows up on the ground is a different story. And the point is, If you look at the maps on the New York Times website or The Economist or or other places, you'll see that vaccinations in sub-Saharan Africa compared to the rest of the world are incredibly low. Many people around the world are getting access to the Chinese vaccine, the Sinovac and such. You know, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting. As my friend Fatima Hassan says from South Africa, it's been drip, 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 drip over the course of 2021 in terms of promises and deliveries for vaccines. And it's not just for South Africa. It's the entire continent. Because we have Pfizer and Moderna refusing to to do what people have been begging them to do for close to a year now, which is to make the recipe for their vaccine available along with tech transfer so we can scale up broadly across the globe to get everybody vaccinated within the next six months.
0: Uh, I have a friend who does some work in Zimbabwe who just got back. He said that they mostly have the Chinese vaccine, and mostly the people who get it are the ones who are in the tourism industry, who work at the upscale uh, hotels uh, near Victoria Falls, because the country wants to. The government wants to restart tourism, and, and in the countryside, very few people, maybe nobody, ever gets vaccinated, and they don't ever test or or anything else. What do we know about the Chinese vaccine? How effective is it?
2: The Chinese vaccine, particularly boosted, I I think, you know, gives you reasonable protection. You know, the point is, is that you just described a situation of haves and have-nots. You know, many people I know in South Africa are vaccinated, but they're um, middle-class academics or activists. You know, as you start to move out into the countryside, you see fewer and fewer people getting vaccinated. The pandemic has um, exacerbated and fed on our inequalities, both domestically and internationally, and that's what we're seeing with vaccines. Um, you know, there's political opposition to getting vaccinated in the U.S. among some Republicans, not all, but there's still zip codes within New Haven and New York and other places around the country in which vaccine penetration and and uptake is is still low. So we're still battling inequalities of healthcare access, which have plagued us for many, many, many generations here in the U.S.
0: You mentioned the Republicans. I have to quote Texas Representative Ronnie Jackson, who is a doctor, who tweeted. About the new Omicron variant, quote, here comes the MEV, the midterm election variant. They need a reason to push unsolicited nationwide mail-in ballots. Democrats will do anything to cheat during an election, but we're not going to let them, close quote. And then a Fox News personality named Pete Hegseth explained the idea, quote, count on a variant about every October, every two years, close quote. So for them, somehow the Democrats have gotten the entire world to pretend there's a dangerous new variant of the virus, which they need as a pretext for voting by mail. What a jackass. I mean,
2: you know, <laughs> excuse my French, but you know, the point is, is that in any other time period, <laughs> we discount these folks as, as as cranks and charlatans and and know-nothings but they are um, sadly representative of an entire political party which has been downplaying the need for vaccination and masks. And they'll say, oh, it's about mandates. No, it's actually when you when you have representatives like, what's her name, Nancy Mack from the Low Country in Virginia, I think, saying, you know, it's better to get infected than to get a vaccine. Well, no, it is not better to get infected than to get a vaccine. You're going to be much more protected from COVID-19 and a severe disease and death uh, by vaccination. And so we really, really have to wonder how he got to the point where Ronnie Jackson becomes uh, an avatar for his party uh, and his party's thinking on public health, particularly when he's a physician.
0: We mostly talk here about vaccines, but you have written recently that vaccines are not enough. They're only the beginning and that Omicron is a reminder of how little we are doing on pandemic prevention in the broader sense, that the social safety net counts as part of pandemic preparedness We've talked about this before, but let's do it again. Look,
2: the vaccine's great. I'm so pleased we have a vaccine that protects most of us from severe disease and death from COVID, but we didn't have to be in the situation of being, you know, one of the worst performing nations on the planet in terms of the response to the pandemic. And we'd like to say, oh, it was Donald Trump or it's this president or that president, but it, we, we spend so little on public health in the United States. Three cents on every healthcare dollar is spent on public health. We have a really frayed public health infrastructure. And it left us vulnerable to this pandemic starting in, in January of 2020. But everybody also likes to think that public health always has to be exactly sort of on the money, You know, testing, treating, testing, treating vaccines. We are protected by the social safety net. We have something in public health called social determinants of health, that things like education and clean drinking water and other things in your sort of broader environment, housing, Really determine whether you get sick or ill. You know, look at the the places in the United States that have poor socioeconomic status or levels, and you're going to see health disparities, um, which way pre predated the pandemic. Things like unemployment, things like assistance to families, nutritional assistance, you know, income support, all are de- deeply important in in providing the sort of the ability for people to stay home when they're sick to protect themselves and their families from acquiring the virus and we just didn't have the potential to do it here uh, unless you could afford those privileges
0: and that takes me to your new piece at the nation.com it's called covid year 2 about suffering the old masters were never wrong that line is the title of a gorgeous poem that W.H. Auden wrote in 1938, just on the eve of World War II. It's about a gorgeous painting by Bruegel, Landscape with the Fall of Icarus. In the painting, reproduced in the Nation magazine, something we don't see very often, a tiny Icarus falls into the sea. We just see his feet in a little splash. And in the rest of the painting, people are carrying on their normal lives. A plowman plows, a shepherd tends his flock. And Auden writes, about suffering they were never wrong, the old masters, how well they understood its human position, how it takes place when someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along. So this is about people turning away when someone else is drowning. COVID year two.
2: The poem has been with me you know, since my youth, but the whole idea that we return to normal in the midst of catastrophe is not just a predicament of the COVID pandemic, it's sort of in human nature. We want to get on and back to normal, but you know, back to normal means we need to literally turn away from the scene of, scene of the catastrophe, whether it's a drowning boy or it's millions of people getting infected every day. What s- sort of astounded me is I wrote the piece on Tuesday and sent it to Don, our editor, and it came out on Thursday. And then on Friday, you know, the new variant gets splashed all over the papers. The interesting point there is in the piece, I said, look, you know, we can continue to sort of go back to normal and forget about the suffering of others. But, you know, in a certain sense, it's not a great testimonial to our, our, our sort of national resolve and, and personality that we're willing to sustain, to watch so much death and suffering pass by, but also it's just gonna allow more variants to emerge. And like, you know, 24 hours later, our new variant is on the front page of the newspapers. I quote a professor from Oxford in there who actually was a professor at Oxford too during his time, but I, I quoted him and he said, look, he said at the beginning of this year, if we think we're gonna get away with sort of the virus turning endemic and sort of being with us forever and ever, it can go in two different directions. It can be at a very, very low level and pops up worldwide, you know, maybe like the flu, which does a lot of damage, or it can be what we have now, which is a really high level of death and destruction that we're willing to put up with. What that's setting us up for is wave after wave of variants. And, you know, our our latest variant appeared just late last week.
0: One more thing. We're recording this on Tuesday, which is Giving Tuesday. For people who want to give money, you have recommended something called the Health justice initiative which i knew nothing about what is the health justice initiative
2: fatima hassan who um, i worked with in south africa when i was there in the early 2000s is a human rights lawyer who's been working on access to medicines for a uh, really really long time and was instrumental in the fight for access to antiretroviral therapy in africa and in south africa the old gang got back together you know in 2020 um, and fatima has been really one of the leading voices pushing for access to COVID vaccines around the world. What's important is that small groups like hers, Health Justice Initiative, aren't Oxfam or Amnesty International, or Doctors Without Borders. She's a tiny organization sort of leading the fight on the ground in South Africa, which has had, she's had an international impact, um, and they're struggling right now. And so every cent or every rand in their case counts.
0: Greg Gonsalves writes about the pandemic for the nation.com. Thank you, Greg. This was great. Thanks, Sean. it's the same old story this is living in the usa and i'm john wiener talking about politics thinking about the left the greatest beatles event of the decade of many decades is the release of the eight-hour documentary called the beatles get back it's been streaming this past week on disney plus to the work of director Peter Jackson, the guy who made Lord of the Rings, he got 60 hours of footage shot for the film Let It Be in January 1969, when the Beatles allowed a film crew to document them as they created and recorded the songs that ended up on the group's final two studio albums, Abbey Road and Let It Be, and as they rehearse for what would be their last live performance, the legendary Rooftop Concert. For comment, we turn to big-time Beatles fan Gustavo Ariano. He's an indispensable columnist for the LA Times, covering, as he says, Southern California, everything, and a bunch of the West and beyond. He previously worked at the late lamented OC Weekly, where he was an investigative reporter for 15 years and an editor for six. And he wrote a memorable column called Ask a Mexican. He's also the author of Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. We talked about it here. He describes himself as the child of two Mexican immigrants, one of whom came to this country in the trunk of a Chevy. Gustavo Ariano, welcome back. Hola, John. Aren't you too young to have grown up with the Beatles? <laughs> I am. But,
3: you know, the Beatles, the the brilliance of the Beatles, that they are now ubiquitous worldwide so that a child of Mexican immigrants can not only become a humongous Beatles fan, but that his nephew is growing up on baby Beatles now, like uh, uh, infant versions of the Beatles. And yes, th- such a thing exists. So it is absolutely incredible. But hey, it's the Beatles, of course. So
0: what did you think of the Beatles get back?
3: I, I am a huge Beatles fan. I actually once I, I won my wife over finally when I sang drunken Beatles karaoke without <laughs> without without the words, by the way, it was all like humming. I could do. Tell me, you know, tell me what you see in all these obscure songs it was a lot. I mean, I I, I had to see it all for uh, the LA Times. We did a roundtable discussion along with uh, my colleagues, Randall Roberts and Mikhail Wood. And um, I just had to have it on the background. I couldn't see the entire thing. I just, you know, the songs, it was great to see their evolution. But I just really didn't care about the back and forth unless things that I thought were important were necessary for me to pay attention to. I think it's the ultimate uh treat for a beatles fanatic but it's still a bit much but if you're not a beatles fan honestly it serves great to have in the background while you're doing your chores on a saturday afternoon (laughs) because you're not going to sit through all of that except except for the rooftop concert which i already the songs on the let it be album The album itself is not my favorite album. That would be Beatles for sale. But in terms of songs, there are some of my favorite songs of all time. And I had already heard most of the songs from the rooftop concert. But to hear it and to see how happy they were and to see the freaking police trying to clamp down on them. Gosh, you know, (laughs) police then police now still the same. Magnificent. That was must see TV. So at the end,
0: it's all worth it. For me, the best part was seeing how they put their songs together. Uh, especially, they focus, or Peter Jackson focuses on the song Get Back, started out as a protest song about racism and pa- packy bashing in Britain. Uh, not really a great way to do a protest song, which <laughs> they sort of conclu- conclude it's too sudden and cheerful and bouncy. So then they turn it into a song about this guy named Jojo. And first they think Jojo has to have a last name. And they kind of toss this back and forth. Jojo Johnson, Jojo Jackson. How about Jojo Jackson had a home in Arizona? And then finally they, they, they decide he doesn't need a last name. And they can just have Jojo left his home in Tucson, Arizona for some California grass. And then John says, "Is Tucson in Arizona?" <laughs> and Paul says, "Yeah, that's where they shoot rawhide." And that kind of settles it. Oh, well, in that case, you know, let's go with that
3: now it was incredible to see the development or the other the one that I like this this uh, opened, I believe it was episode three where Ringo's telling everyone, "Hey, look, I made this song, and it turns out to be Octopus's Garden. John and Paul don't care. George, God bless his ever cranky soul, comes in with his guitar and they make out Octopus's Garden, which is one of the two songs that Ringo ever had full credit for while he was a Beatle. And it's an enjoyable song and all that. But it's it's amazing to see. I mean, and we forget how young they were. Paul was 26 years old. Ringo, the elder statesman, was 29. And they're doing songs that will you know, withstand the test of time forever. But no, going back to Get Back and. One of the important things I think that this uh, documentary does is disprove a lot of things. And so forever, the the rumors were that we knew that Get Back originally started, uh, you know, uh, 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 with ridiculing immigrants. But people people didn't know if Paul was being serious or satirical. Now we see it. Specifically, they're going against Enoch Powell, Eric Clapton's favorite politician, who was a (laughs) neo-fascist, racist jerk they're reading about it. I think it was the daily mail, the the newspaper, or maybe the evening express, but they're reading about it. They're not liking it. And uh, imagine how powerful it would have been if the Beatles had done this protest song. Instead, they're talking about sweet Loretta Martin who thought she was a woman, but she was another man. (laughs) Oh, figure.
0: Well, what we see about the creative process is John and Paul, of course all the Beatles songs are credited to Lennon-McCartney that was their deal and they do have this basic dynamic we see it they stand like about 10 feet apart facing each other playing and singing to each other just totally locked into each other tossing riffs back and forth lines back and forth and you know they make a lot of impressive progress and end up with Beatles songs but George and Ringo, just in the background, they're just sitting there watching and listening to this, waiting to find out what the lead two guys are gonna want them to do. You can actually see why George quits in the middle of this.
3: I, as a Beatles fan, I thought it was always in George. I mean, remember his first original composition on Beatles, on on With the Beatles was called Don't Bother Me. So this guy was always a crank, always idiosyncratic. I think, you know he was the youngest, so I'm sure he always felt a little at first insecure. But by the end, I mean he's already doing all things must pass. Isn't it a pity? You're seeing, I mean, something we see something start bubbling yeah. up. Yeah. This guy was a genius in his own way, yeah. and he's like, I don't need this anymore. And also, don't forget, the first person to officially quit quit the uh, the Beatles was Ringo during uh, their session with the Maharishi out in India because Ringo had quit the Beatles for a little bit back in the USSR. It was Paul who was doing the drumming instead of Ringo.
0: Excellent point. And then there's the really annoying part of this documentary. Michael Lindsay Hogg, (laughs) who was the director of the original 1970 documentary Let It Be, which left us all believing the Beatles were a bunch of irritable kind of jerks who didn't get along. Uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg is incredibly annoying. He puffs on this stupid cigar. He wears three suits and he doesn't know when to shut up. They don't like his ideas. His idea is they should go to Tripoli to shoot their final live concert. And they don't want to go to Tripoli. Or maybe they should do it on a cruise ship or maybe they should do it at an orphanage i mean that's one idea worse than the next and he doesn't stop and um i i think that that peter jackson has gets a lot of grim pleasure out of showing what a jerk his predecessor was
3: maybe michael lindsey hogg is the real reason the beatles broke up maybe they got so sick of all that i mean remember look now there's you're starting to see this uh Reimagining of these sessions, we but we're forgetting what was said by the Beatles themselves. Immediately, George Harrison said the sessions were miserable. John Lennon, you know, talking to Jan Werner with Rolling Stone in 1970, and also he always talked trash. Paul McCartney hated those sessions so much that I mean, he literally, you know, he went after Phil Spector. He went after this documentary. It's great and all to see them, you know. It's it's. I I think John also told Rolling Stone, it's like, look, anyone. Like, I'm always going to trash the Beatles, but no one else can trash the Beatles except myself. If Mick Jagger says something, then I'm going to get on him. But let's not romanticize these sessions either. Like, you could already see this is the beginning of the end. And let's celebrate it as such. Like, even when it was their supposed worst sessions, they were still doing brilliant stuff. They were still just riffing off, I mean, doing... you know everything from Cole Porter to a little bit of. I mean, one thing I didn't like about this session I'm about the Get Back uh, documentary is that they didn't have more of "You Really Got a Hold on Me," which mm. is actually included in the original Let It Be movie. The Beatles love Motown. I wanted more Smokey, but that's just me.
0: <laughs> yeah, another one of the most wonderful things about seeing their their what we can call their creative process is how they continually go back to classic rock, '50s rock. Uh, Elvis, Little Richard, then Motown, uh, just to sort of lift their spirits or get in shape or get their minds in the right place. That's about may- maybe half of all the music they play, of all the songs anyway, are these these great oldies, which of course they could do in their sleep, but it's, it's tremendous fun. Uh, the he- biggest surprise to me, I have to say, was Billy Preston. Oh, no. You kind of knew that Billy Preston was part of this, But his appearance really transforms the group. They talk about how great it is to have Billy there. And of course, his playing of this electric piano, which they brought into the studio, is is fabulous, especially on Don't Let Me Down. He has this incredible solo on Don't Let Me Down. Um, So, you know, hats off to Billy Preston. Unfortunately, (laughs) Michael Lindsay Hogg did not have any cameras on Billy Preston in the rooftop concert. They had him way off in the corner, so it'll just be the, you know, the fab four. It's really it's really it's kind of shocking. The Beatles have always
3: said that the session improved immediately when Billy walked on the scene. And when we see him in the studios, he's electric his and if you know, Billy Press, of course, became an incredible artist in his own right. And his concerts were actually absolutely incredible. And you see this and he's a young man at that point, again, mid 20s. So you're and we know he is so fundamental to get back his little riffs. uh, Don't Let Me Down, which is a magnificent song. The original version, not the Phil Spector version, but the long and winding road. He has another very like subliminal as uh, piano performance. So as the concert's going on, as they're going through a song, I'm like, Where's Billy? And like there was the way it was framed, one shot, like it kind of looked like a piano. I'm like, wait, am I misremembering my entire life? I thought Billy was part of the concert. And then you see him like hidden behind Paul. And that's when I asked myself, dude, Michael, director, you had an invited guest and you don't have a single camera on him. What a dummy. What an absolute dummy. Yeah. And they've got about 20 cameras going. You know. <laughs> they have one in a in, in a roof across the way so they could do these slow uh, zoom ins to the Beatles. And they're still super small. It, it was it was crazy. Yeah. So what did you think of the Yoko parts? We all bought the hype that Yoko destroyed the Beatles here. You see her. She's just. She's just there with John. I mean, sometimes she's seeing sometimes she'll say stuff. But Linda Eastman, uh, you know, later Linda McCartney, she was there almost as much as John uh, as Yoko, but she never got all the crap. Uh, George Harrison had two Hare Krishna guys right there in the studio, which I frankly would have found more annoying than Yoko being in there later on. And, you know, and you have to tr- place it also in just the Beatles uh, trajectory. Maybe this was a time where they were still learning to her. Maybe later on. Paul really did get annoyed, but it wasn't just yet. I mean, after these sessions, they end up recording the ballad of John and Yoko. So John is uh, like falling more and more in love. But if Yoko did break up the Beatles, which he didn't, by the way, it definitely didn't happen with let it be. It didn't. It absolutely didn't. So I think this finally redeems her once and for all, like, like she was treated racially, you know, the, the British press absolutely just could not stand the idea of a Japanese woman being part of this most British of bands. And hey, it just shows, uh, you know, how
0: stupid the press was back then. And Paul is perfectly nice uh, to her. Paul, when when the two of them leave and the other three Beatles are together, Paul explains, you know, that they, John was John considers them to be inseparable. And, you know, it's part of his life now and He's perfectly nice about it. He's not mad at her. There was always this
3: myth of the Beatles that when Paul would sing the line, get back to where you once belong, that he would shoot dagger eyes at Yoko. You don't see that at all, at all. Like I frankly, I mean, this is what you grew up with as a Beatles fan, the rumor is, uh, you know, the the uh, the bootleg tapes and all of that. And this blows it up once and for all. Yeah, they were per- not, they were not just cordial. they were friendly. They were there. They're like, yeah, Yoko is, you know, is important to John and John's important to us and we're going to fight. Sure. But like, no, there's there's no problem with this at all.
0: And uh, in your capacity as a historian of Chicano, L.A., you reported in the L.A. Times two things about which I knew nothing. The Beatles had an east side Chicano band open their historic shows at Shea Stadium and the Hollywood Bowl. Which group was that
3: cannibal and the headhunters land of a thousand dances? They're the ones. That's a very famous song, of course, but they're the ones who included the na, 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 because na, the lead singer forgot the lyrics that went with that part. But yeah, a Chicano band from East Los opened up for the Beatles at some of their most iconic shows. And th- I made that point to point out that the Beatles were always quiet progressives. They refused to play segregated shows in uh, the, in Daly City, in the in the Bay Area, in Jacksonville. They're like, we're not going to do it. Of course, Blackbird, one the only Beatles song that I know how to, one of the two Beatles songs I know how to play on the guitar. Um, (laughs) The other one is No Reply, which is actually one of my top five of all time. But uh, Blackbird, of course, was an allegory about the civil rights struggle in the United States in the 1960s. And yeah, uh, we're promoting a Chicano band. Paul Paul, uh, requested them specifically, and it showed just that they were paying attention to what was going on in the United States. They lived in a hell of a bubble, but at the same time, they wanted to interact with the good of the outside world.
0: And of course, the Beatles were picketed by the Klan in Memphis. Uh, who was with the Klan was upset because uh, John had uh, had said it, offhand, joking remark, "We're more popular than Jesus these days." The Klan picketed him, so that was a shocking thing to them, and it led to these right-wing record burnings by Christian fundamentalists. So uh, they were kind of politicized on against their will, it was not their idea that they wanted to take on the Klan. But they they ended up, you know, they learned something from that.
3: Yeah, they they made it happen throughout their career. Of course, it wasn't until the Vietnam War where John and it was more John and Yoko speaking out against the war than, say, the other ones. But as I always tell young people, especially to each their own in the struggle, as long as you have a role in the struggle. Some people are going to be louder. Some like they weren't the kinks, which I love the kinks. They were just such class warriors. They always Ray, you know, Ray Davies and his brother, the animals, of course, as well. They, you know, they were far more uh, uh, acerbic about class and, 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 politics. The Beatles were the Beatles, peace and love, but in their own, again, in their own quiet,
0: furtive ways, they were activists on another level. One, uh, one LA history angle that you public, that you, taught me about that I didn't know George's wife Olivia Harrison where is she from what's her
3: story she's a Chicana from Hawthorne Hawthorne High the same Uh place of the Beach Boys so Donnie Harrison George and Olivia's uh, son is a half Chicano It's absolutely amazing so these I mean yeah and so especially as a Mexican-American someone who grew up with it to learn these little tidbits it's cool it just makes the Beatles
0: even cooler in my eyes Concluding thoughts about eight hours. You're going to watch it again. Maybe not.
3: (laughs) No, I mean, well, first and foremost, I don't have a subscription to Disney Plus. I'm not going out there. I was able to get a screener because I'm a reporter, but I'll probably go buy the album. I mean, just to have that music, Um, probably the book. But again, this goes into the Beatles industrial complex, which I love the band. I have all their CDs. I have some of the books. I didn't get Let It Be Naked because at that point, Paul, come on. I know you just despise that time. I'm not going to do it again and again. But as much as I love the Beatles, this is my critique of them. And this is going to be pretty harsh, but I'm going to stand by it. The Beatles now, the Beatles empire reminds me of Scientology in Mm. this sense that every once in a while, Scientology will say, hey, we're going to release the works of L. Ron Hubbard. Or now we have these uh, these uh, speeches of him that haven't been seen in 40 years. We're going to put it out there. You should buy it. That's what the Beatles are doing. They're just scraping everything. Yeah, I know. Comparing them to Scientology, the Beatles of Scientology is a big stretch. And some people are not going to be happy with it, but they're still my favorite band of all time. They always will be. And someone please for Christmas, get me to let it be sessions now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Gustavo Ariano wrote for the LA Times about the Beatles Get Back. The eight-hour documentary is streaming now on Disney Plus. Gustavo. Thanks so much for doing this. Gracias. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.